0: This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Becky Yos. She's the founder and library data privacy consultant for LDH Consulting Services. Becky's wrangled library data in its various forms in academic and public libraries over the years. You can find her online at yobj.net. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Mometrics and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com/slash support. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at Mometrics Test Preparation created the Mometrix e-library. Through their e-library portal, Mometrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study, all fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrix eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. Becky, welcome to Circulating Ideas.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to get started uh, the way I very often get started on the show is finding out how you got involved in librarianship in the first place. What got you interested in entering this field?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, um, the very short version was that I wasn't supposed to be the librarian in my family. My oldest sister was the reader. She worked at the public library when she was in high school and in college. I was the one who, who sort of tinkered around the technology side of things. So I was the one who was sneaking into my brother's bedrooms to play with the computers there, playing with the video game consoles there. But when I got to college, I did end up getting a job at the library there. And my first job was reshelving books with the circulation department. And then uh, the technical services department, the serials division, was looking for someone to do some processing. And once I got into technical services, I sort of, it was sort of a very illuminating experience in terms of seeing the guts of a library, how the library functions. So you have your cataloging, you have ser- you have everything that goes on with serials, you have processing, you have acquisitions and whatnot. And I sort of fell in love with technical services. And I ended up sticking with libraries since then. My path has been somewhat unusual in terms of the way that I approach my work with librarianship. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: When I went to um, UW-Madison, my focus was mainly on organization of information. So I did my practicum in cataloging. I took all the cataloging and metadata courses I could. I also self-taught myself a little bit of programming, and a little bit of technology through various free or online coding courses. Because um, once I got into My first job after library school, which was a bibliographic systems librarian at Miami University of Ohio, I essentially became the developer for technical services. I was doing building applications and macros to automate database maintenance, so cleanup projects, metadata cleanup projects, as well as several levels of cataloging and acquisitions. Again, it's getting into the guts of how things work and seeing how you can approve things with both the knowledge of how the data is created in terms of what standards there are, what formats, what rules you have to follow, along with the standards and formats and languages you have to choose from with with the programming and coding side. As I went to Grinnell College and Seattle Public Library, I ended up going more towards the system side, managing, overseeing the ILS digital repository. Um, At Grinnell College, we were a very small shop, and we had a mix of proprietary software and for example, we were one of the very early testers of the Sierra ILS system from Innovative. But we also were one of the earlier adopters of Islandora, which was an open re- open source repository system. So that was a very unique situation where we were a very small shop. We were very limited resource-wise, but we also had the skill set to... We also had the skill set, but we also had the mobility to pull off things fairly quickly. We were fairly agile in that aspect. Then moving on to Seattle Public Library was a huge change in both going from an academic library background, which I was essentially academic libraries up to that point, Mm -hmm. to a public library. And that was a eye-opening experience in terms of what populations we served as a library. When I was at UW-Eau Claire, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, it was a regional liberal arts institution. So we not only had traditional students from your 18-year-olds to your 22-year-olds, you also had commuter students. You had students who were transfers from the two-year colleges or community colleges. You had students who were going part-time. So you have a variety of students who were bringing in a variety of different life experiences into the classroom. And I really valued that. I found that a huge part of what shaped me going through my career is having that experience where I can talk to other people with other um, experiences in life and then coalescing all what I learned from these folks and building Something or trying to find ways to better serve these folks, especially those folks who are underserved or in vulnerable populations or in targeted populations in terms of uh, discrimination, inequities, and so on. Going to a public library. Um, sort of brings that back into focus where you're realizing you're not only serving a certain subset of the population with students and with faculty, you're serving the wide range of you're serving the mayor, for example, who is pretty well off. And then you're serving people who are insecurely housed who may or may not have resources to even pay a small library fine if they, Had something that was lost or overdue. So you're trying to figure out ways where you're in the back room. Okay, you're in the IT department. So IT departments usually don't get um, pegged as a customer service facing department. But you still have the power in that back room to make or break someone's library experience. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking about how can we create online services that do not have barriers with searching, with discoverability, with accessibility, with usability, as well as making sure that we are able to provide services that target um, these populations, vulnerable, underrepresented populations, to empower them to be able to make it in a society that is structurally built in a way that they are not able to succeed otherwise
0: right well and you you actually bring up a good point there that I it's come up before in in that um, whether you want to use the word "customer" or not, but basically all everybody who works at the library is in customer service. I mean, we're all about serving the patron. It's all whether it's you're directly face to face with them, like somebody working at a help desk or something, but like you say, the people who are um, deciding on cataloging terms and people even the people who are driving the trucks around to, to, for the courier of getting books from one li- branch to another, everybody is serving the um, patron at the end of the day.
1: Yes, and particularly with uh, IT, well, with cataloging, you're serving the patron in terms of providing access points for the systems to process and then aid in discoverability. And the IT end, you have the systems that take this data and you're supposed to process it in a way that makes discoverability um, as low effort as one as one can get with that system. A little bit of some of my work with Seattle Public Library, particularly with all these systems being in IT, with IT you're working with data. You're not only working with metadata, you're also seeing how much data the systems collect just by default and I'm seeing all these system logs, I'm seeing all the backups, I'm seeing just the settings and whatnot that by default, you can collect a huge amount of information mm-hmm. on a patron mm-hmm. if, you're, if you just let the systems run as, as default. And once you start thinking about it, you're, you start thinking about, okay, who's, who's in Seattle? Okay, you have middle-aged, white, middle-class people like myself. Um, you have people who are well-off because of the tech industry here. Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. And then you have those on the... Other end, who are not as well off. You again, you have the insecurely housed. Um, Seattle has a housing crisis. It's been in a housing crisis for many, many years. Part of that is because of the rising rents and developers just essentially edging out people who could afford rent but not afford rents that the developers are setting it as. And then you have people who are immigrants, you have people who are refugees, you have people who are undocumented, you have folks who, who just, for, for one reason or another, if this data gets into the wrong hands, can ruin their lives. Um, and when you're in the back room, when you're seeing all this data, And when you have an awareness of how this data can be used, you start thinking to yourself, okay. Now, I work with administration very closely. I've worked with faculty very closely. I've worked with managers. I've worked with financial and marketing people. They all want data. This data allows them to make decisions on their end to be better able to allocate resources to better serve patrons, users, the general population, students, whatnot, whatever their audience is. Right. At the same time, we right. as a profession, we have privacy as a cornerstone of what we talk about when we talk about intellectual freedom, giving patrons the ability To be able to access content without fear or repercussion from external sources as well as library staff. When we have this data just there, even if we're using it for operational purposes, even if we're using this data to better serve our patrons, we have the library has a responsibility to ensure that we are not putting our patrons at risk especially patrons who most likely who are most likely to stand to lose the most if this information does get out in the wrong hands for example when ice when there were reports about ice going around Seattle and other major cities on public transport, or there were reports about ICE hanging out outside of meeting rooms where there might be a class going on that might attract undocumented people. You start thinking, okay, what happens if someone's keeping a roster of names? who attended that workshop or attended that meeting. How does the library respond if there is an ICE agent or another governmental agent who wants that information at that time? Of course, many libraries have policies in place with law enforcement requests, but it's much easier if you don't have that information in the first place when it's being requested. And so that's an example of a paper format of collecting data. Electronically we are beyond keeping names. We are keeping patron activity. So if someone's looking for a specific pattern of activity or if you've visited this particular site, search these particular keywords. Even the most Careful of libraries, it, you're still collecting information that you still need to be very careful about handling in terms of storage, in terms of reporting and in terms of um, retention and deletion, especially nowadays with a lot of a lot of cloud services, include library technologies such as your ILS. Such as your authentication systems, such as your customer relations management systems, electronic resources, and so on. And so, sort of the part of the reason why I went now to the privacy sector is there's a lot of libraries who want to do right by their patrons. They want to be able to say we value our patrons privacy. We want to make sure that we keep the trust of our patrons. At the same time, libraries have to face the reality. there are two realities. One, data is necessary if you want to prove your if you want to prove your existence, if you want to prove your worth to your funders, be it your taxpayers, be it your admins at the academic institutions, be it your school, lot, be it at your uh, school superintendent or school board, be it the CEO of a company, so on. And two, libraries just don't have the resources, dedicated in-house resources, to be able to do a comprehensive privacy program. We do some there is there is patchwork here and there. There's a lot of people who are doing a lot of great stuff in library land. At the same time, there's not enough of us.
0: Right. And you recently um, went on on your own to help uh, address this, and I'll get to that in just a second. But I did want to um, follow up a because obviously you're saying, you know, there is data that people need and things like that, and there's even valuable data that necessarily is not bad data, quote unquote. Um, so, how do we how do libraries balance that need for data and yet also keeping that data private and secure? Because I mean, obviously there is some data we need to keep, but how do you keep that private and secure when you, it's needed? Like we have to give circulation numbers or whatever to a city council or something like that, or but that doesn't need to be obviously patron activity attached to those items that were circulated. And so, how do you how do how do libraries look at that balance?
1: And that's a really good example about giving statistics about circulation or about library use. Data privacy starts even be- even before you start collecting. It starts when you decide what to collect. A lot of us collect data just in case because we are not very sure what exactly – we need the data for, but we just don't want to be in a situation where hindsight is 2020. We should have collected this data point because right. we would have been able to tell a more compelling story to our administrators about this particular program so they can keep funding it, for example. So even before the collection phase, we need to start asking ourselves, what are we collecting? What do we want to collect and why do we want to collect it? What is the business case? What is the documented business case as to why we need this data point? And you start making these lists of data points that you want to collect. You start making the rationale why you need to collect these data points. And then you start looking at what types of data you want to collect. So, for example, if you just want to collect circulation totals for a particular subsection of your collection, that's fairly, that, that's fairly harmless. You have uh, lots of ILSs that keep this in their item records. They keep it in their bibliographic records where they'll just say this item has circulated X amount of times it gets a little bit more complex if you're wanting to give statistics about has this item circulated X amount of times in this particular branch or in this particular location or who has checked this out in terms of demographics. Now, once we get into demographics, um, such as age, address, um, and so on, that's where we get into risky territory. If you're wanting to keep, Keep statistics or wanting to keep data about a patron themselves, you have to start thinking about okay, so we want to, for example, know the age of the people who are using this particular resource or using this particular location. How do we reduce the risk of harm if by chance? This information gets out in terms of the age of the patron, which then could be used to identify the patron um, if you combine it with other data points. One way that you can do- go about it is through aggregation. Aggregation means that you're basically stepping from a very from a very granular point of data to a more um, generalized point of data. So for example, if you have someone who is twenty three, you can possibly move that data point up to a age range of twenty to twenty five year olds. So that person will be counted in twenty and twenty five year old range without specifically calling out that person. Combined with other data, you still have some risk of reidentification of that person. Let's say, for example, if you have that age range combined with a location that, isn't, that doesn't have many um, people in that service area, we call those outliers, and many libraries have a lot of outliers. So you have to be careful about that when you start thinking about, okay, what data do we need to collect and for what business purpose? Another way that you can reduce the risk of uh, re-identification of patrons or reduce the risk of harm if the patrons re-identified is finding proxy data. I'm going to give you an example of what I went through with one particular vendor at Seattle Public Library. The marketing department was working with a contractor who was doing market segmentation of our patrons and they were asking for age, they were asking for ethnicity, they were asking for um, income, education level, how many children they had and we were just scratching our head and going explaining to the uh, to the to the consultant, we're sorry, but even though we do have age, we don't have any of that, any other information.
0: <laughs> That's not part of a library card application form. So.
1: Not, not for Seattle Public, at least. Um, you'd be surprised what you can find in other application forms. Now, um, we were explaining to the consultant about why we don't collect this information however the market segmentation tool that they were creating relies on a series of data points to be able to put patrons in one type in one segment or another so we had to go back and figure out okay so we have certain types of data what could be proxy data for the information that they want, at the same time, not having to go out to patrons saying, hey, so if you want to give us your education level, your income, your <laughs> ethnicity, um, how many kids you have, that would be great. <laughs> Probably not the best thing. that, that.
0: <laughs> No, maybe not. <laughs>
1: maybe not. What we ended up doing is we ended up using the zip code as a proxy for all, all that information. It is lower risk, yes, however, um, using the zip code comes with its own issues. Um, first off, it is it is It is unfortunate that zip codes can tell you the education level, the income, ethnicity, whatnot. Um, that's the society that we're in. Um, at the second point, we want to make sure if we're using zip codes that we don't end up making decisions that would otherwise take resources away from, population, from services that serve populations that need it the most. To that end, to be able to balance data needs and, and patron privacy, it starts at the point where you're considering what you're going to collect. Now, on the technical end, you have your standard your your, your standard advice, your standard list of security and privacy um, practices such as making sure data stores are encrypted, making sure that um, you have encryption in transit and in storage. Um, So, for example, you have SIP. The SIP protocol in itself is not encrypted. So how do you deal with information that is going from your your self-check terminal to your system? Mm -hmm. One way people have been able to secure that transmission of information is basically building a secure tunnel for that traffic. So basically going through... um, Making sure that library staff have the appropriate access of what they need for their daily duties. So essentially not giving everyone administrative access to your ILS, for example, where they can access all patron records and then they can edit whoever they want to edit. That could be done, again, through technical settings, but also through policies and procedures that the library can implement. Um, making sure that people have appropriate access to the physical servers and the physical um, hardware. So essentially making sure that only authorized personnel can get into the server closet, server room, or any other place that has equipment that holds sensitive information, that holds patron data. But then you also have the vendor side. So when you're doing your request for proposals, request for information, your procurement process, how does your library address privacy and security standards? What is in your RFI or RFP for vendors so they can talk about what privacy and security protocols they have in place to protect patron information that they themselves will be collecting, processing, reporting, and storing. And that's one thing that I've been noticing in the conversation between library vendors and librarians. Librarians are saying that library systems from vendors are not secure. They are, they are collecting all this information. We don't want them to collect all this information. And then you're getting library vendors, um, the majority. Uh, a good portion of library vendors who are saying they're not in the RFP. So if they're not in the RFP, then we have no way to gauge what they actually want or what they actually need. There are some library vendors that do a fairly good job of making things secure and making things secure with their patron data in their systems. There are other vendors who are collecting information that, once you figure out that they are collecting, you start hitting the red button that says stop and you can't really get them to do anything because you've already signed a contract. Um, now, you, when you go into renegotiations with licensing or contract, you can also put contract addendums in terms of if the vendor needs to follow your privacy pro- privacy policies and so on. Um, there is also the option of joining together as a either a consortium or a bigger group of libraries, essentially, and going to these vendors if there's a particular vendor that has a particular data collection or privacy practice that does not align with the code of ethics, the Bill of Rights that we have with the American Library Association. And use that collective power to negotiate a change with that vendor.
0: Well, I think throughout this whole um, interview conversation we've been having, I think you're demonstrating very well your expertise in this subject matter. And um, what you've decided to do with that recently is you've got you've created LDH Consulting Services. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to make the jump and kind of focus on this? Um, exclusively on your own and what need were you, we've kind of talked about the need, I guess, that the library world has for, for the, for these, for this, um, kind of information, but what what made you want to create this separate service so that, that this is what you focus on now?
1: It's been a long time coming. Once I got into Seattle public library, I was jumping straight into the fire. Essentially we had a data warehouse that was in its infancy And we were doing a good number of data de-identification methods. So your truncation, your obfuscation, your aggregation, and starting getting to just the technical components of ensuring that we have a level of privacy in the data warehouse, level security in the data warehouse, that we can use data for operational needs, but at the same time, Protecting patron privacy. So I started. I started doing privacy work essentially when I hit the ground running when I started at SPL in 2015. I started getting more involved. I got my certification um, with the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Um, the certification that I have is. They call it the CIPP US, which is the Certified Information Privacy Professional, focusing on the U.S. private sector. So, if you want to talk about employment privacy, if you want to talk about health information privacy, if you want to talk about any regulation that talks about data privacy, um, I can probably regurgitate what I—I I mean, not regurgitate. I can probably sort of take off the mental block of that test and (laughs) tell you uh, all about those. But I got my certification in 2018, and that was the summer of 2018. That's when I started thinking, okay, so I've been in part of privacy conversations in the library world for a few years now. And in 2018, we had two... Fairly, uh, fairly significant forums who, that were funded by the IMLS. So you had the Library Values and Privacy Summit in May. That was in New York City. And then you had the Web Privacy Forum, which was in Bozeman, Montana, and that was in September. And one of the main threads in both of those forums and what other conversations i've been having with other people there is interest there is a desire by libraries to do right by their patrons in terms of protecting their privacy there is a desire from library vendors who are sort of some vendors who are sort of scratching their heads going we're getting really mixed signals from libraries. So, for example, they might be in negotiations with one particular library. You have library administration saying one thing, but you also have library staff saying another. You might have that one person or a couple people who are privacy advocates who are saying the system must do this one thing. And you have an administration who um, says the system has to do another thing and the vendor just doesn't know what to do. They'll go with the administrator because the administrator signs the contract. So there is a need. And I was at a position in 2018 to seriously start thinking about what would it look like for someone or a startup company or something to go out there to the library world for both vendors and for libraries. You want to be able to say to your patrons, we value privacy and this is what we're doing to protect your privacy. But you also want to say at the same time to your administrators and to those who are signing, who are essentially the decision makers, this is the data that shows that we need to fund this particular service or fund this particular project because this particular service or this particular project meets this need for this particular portion of the community. And at the end of 2018, beginning 2019, I've, after talking to others in the library privacy field and a little bit more research, I decided you know what, better now than never. Because with GDPR, so um, with the European Union's GDPR becoming, coming into enforcement in 2018, um, a lot of libraries are scratching their heads going, do we need to comply? What does it look like if we need to comply? And so on. The bigger issue for U.S. libraries and for U.S. library vendors is the the, the cloud, the fog that, that is U.S. privacy regulation, because currently, historically, library data has been regulated hodgepodge between states. So different states have different regulations surrounding patron records, um, library vendors, depending on what information they have, um Again, depending on the state or depending on if they're needing to make sure that they are in line with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, SOCOPA, and so on. In 2018, you had California coming in with their privacy law, which is very much like GDPR, but at the same time, they have a few tweaks that are significant enough that libraries need to start paying attention as as well as library vendors. Once California does something, usually once California does something in terms of regulation, other states tend to follow. So you have other states that are starting to develop their own privacy laws and starting to push those through their own state governments. So once the states start doing their own thing, the federal government goes in and says, well, perhaps we need a overarching federal data privacy law and now you have this mess of federal you know federal privacy regulation proposals that do vastly different things and then you have the states going with their own different flavors of the California law the CCPA law as well as GDPR so the next couple of years, at least, is going to be a very turbulent time for libraries and library vendors when we start talking about what do you need to do for compliance? Not only compliance, but also the changing landscape of library technology itself. You have a lot of library vendors who are now up in the cloud offering cloud services. But one trend in particular that concerns me as a librarian, as a privacy professional, and as a library patron, is the marriage of the systems that, systems of the ILS and your customer relations management system. There are some vendors that have their standalone customer relations management systems, your CRMS. It is now becoming the trend of putting the CRMS with the ILS. So essentially, depending on how that system is built, your patron record might have information about your patron's activities. So for example, um, what links they click from a marketing email sent from your library, what programs did they attend? You're essentially building a user profile in one place your ILS. If that doesn't raise red flags in terms of privacy risk, I don't know what else there would be.
0: I feel like federal regulations are definitely coming, especially just the more and more Facebook screws up, <laughs> the more and more that <laughs> just gets it because that's something that affects so many people and that's making Congress sit up and take notice and bringing Zuckerberg and everybody to Congress and twitter and all these companies that are having these data breaches or data security problems whatever they have however they want to call it
1: (laughs) yeah here's the funny thing though um there is regulation in congress that was proposed um one in particular mark rubio's um add act that bill itself preempts state law so that bill i've I had a chance to look at some of the, uh, the bill text. Um, needless to say, um, if that bill passes, if that comes into law, the stricter state laws, so California's law, for example, and Washington State's law, if that, well, Washington State's uh, Privacy Act is still being discussed, but it's most likely probably going to pass this this session. Having a weaker federal privacy law, it's not gonna make things much better in, in terms of protecting patrons or protecting consumers overall in the US. Right. But that is a possibility if this particular legislation gets signed into law by the federal government. But there are others In the federal, but there are other proposals in uh, Congress that are stronger, are more strict in certain areas. There is one in particular that's a draft bill that may or may not be proposed that specifically calls out um, businesses must disclose any processing of customer data that is used for algorithms, that is used for machine learning, that is used by artificial intelligence. I find that very interesting because that's been a very hot topic for libraries, and some library vendors are starting to play around with ML. Um, Some libraries as well have been starting to play around with machine learning as well. So it'll be interesting if that passes and seeing how um, not only the commercial sector, but libraries as well um, deal with that.
0: Right. Um, and I did look it up. That is, that's the American Data Dissemination Act is what ADD is. So. Yes. Um. Yeah, so uh, this is always a tricky thing of these overlapping jurisdictions and federal law overriding state laws. And so it, that's always a messy issue. And it's also kind of a thing of since everything is online, like I'm in Georgia, how many of my patrons need to be using their library card in California? Are am I suddenly have to follow the Georgia, the California laws because my patron is logging into my website there. You know, I, I don't understand, you know, the, the internet is kind of weird jurisdictionally, I think.
1: The internet is weird jurisdictionally. Yeah. It's uh GDPR is also causing a lot of libraries to ask that same question. It was very interesting when I was talking to other libraries. So some academic libraries, talked to their legal counsel and they said, yes, since we have satellite campuses in Europe or since we have X number of people, um, European citizens attending this university, it's better safe than sorry to comply. Um, Public libraries, it's been a mixed bag. Um, I can tell you at least from my conversations with legal counsel at when I was working for Seattle and also when I was talking to other public librarians at other cities, we just don't meet that threshold. As far as we know, GDPR, even though it was passed years ago, enforcement just began last year and the legal profession, the legal community, when you ask them, when you ask them, so, do we need to comply with GDPR? This is, this is who we are. This is what we do in terms of services. And since libraries live online nowadays, um, for example, if we use a web analytics software on our website, and if someone from the European Union happens to go on our website, does that count as a trigger for us to comply with GDPR? And the answer from most of the legal community who's around GDPR right now will essentially be shrug emoji. (laughs) It is so new in terms of um, enforcement that they are waiting. Essentially, it's going to be a couple of years before we get enough case law to determine um, to better un, to better be able to guide who needs to comply and who doesn't need to comply. But with all that said, um, some of the things in GDPR is just good practice to follow, even if you don't need to comply. Privacy by design, which is talked about in GDPR, is something that libraries and library vendors should be looking at. Yet anyway if they're not already implementing it um, just to give you a very very sh- short version of what privacy by design is it's essentially telling you that privacy should be part of a development process or part of a planning process at the get-go because usually like security um, you develop your service you develop your program you buy the product and then down the road, you go, oh, yeah, we should probably talk about privacy and security about this product or service. So it, it's, it, it, it avoids putting the Band-Aid. It avoids the Band-Aid approach that we do nowadays with many of our systems, with many of our services in, in relation to privacy and security concerns.
0: Right. I think that's kind of a thread that's kind of gone through our whole talk here is that basically libraries need to be thinking about this and thinking about it in advance. And so far, it's kind of been very patchwork. And so we really need to focus on it. And a good way of focusing on it is hiring LDH consulting services (laughs) to help you out with that.
1: I would be more than happy to talk to folks. Um, Shameless self-promotion. Um, I'm more than happy to talk to libraries or library and/or library vendors about privacy, privacy training, privacy audits. Um, a little bit more the technical things in terms of looking at what you're collecting, what data are you collecting, what data you're storing, um, data access in terms of who has access, um, how you're doing re- your reports. Do you dump out the raw data along with your reports? That could be an issue. And then the last thing that people tend to not think about is deletion and retention. How long do you need to keep a data set or data point? And how do you properly delete your data once you no longer need to use it? And a lot of people, every workplace I've been to, has a tape backup, at least a decade old from their ILS, somewhere sitting around the IT or systems office.
0: destroy that thing
1: destroy that thing
0: you get to have fun destroying physical items
1: (laughs) oh yes so the uh the advice i would say is just make sure you have safety goggles make sure you're wearing safety equipment before you take the hammer to any hard drives or tape drives
0: (laughs) be safe in your (laughs) destruction. yep um so um The last thing I wanted to ask about um, is, just to wrap up, is can you tell me a little bit more about your executive assistant?
1: All right. So LDH Consulting Services is a business of two two entities. The first entity is myself. I founded uh, LDH Consulting Services. And for those of you who are wondering, LDH is library data hat. So... If you have seen me in person or seen me online, you have seen me wearing a hat most of the time. That's mm-hmm. just referencing the hat that I wear. The second entity of LDH is my, I believe she is 12 years old this year. She is a black British short hair cat called Sophia. She is a one eyed black cat, and she has been pretty productive in terms of keeping me in line, making sure that I am working when I'm supposed to be working. Um, She does protect the laptop that I work on on the off hours, so the level security of my client's data is safer because of her watchful eye over my laptop. (laughs) Um, She also has the security system known as her claws, which she regularly keeps up her sharpness keeps up her skills by shredding my couch. So there is a physical security component as well.
0: Well, I have to say she was a dream to work with when we were scheduling this podcast. She, she's she's excellent with your scheduling. So.
1: Well, I will pass that along. She is napping at the moment. Um, she she did tell me today I had a full schedule. So that that was very helpful of her and... I hope that she continues her, her path of um, helpfulness throughout <laughs> the venture of LDH.
0: Well, if any listeners want to follow up with you or Sophia, um, how can they get in touch with you?
1: All right. So my website is ldhconsultingservices.com. You can find my email there as well as phone information, or if you want to do snail mail, that's pretty okay as well i'm also on twitter at yo underscore bj all
0: right well again if people need this services and you probably do (laughs) um get in touch with becky and sophia and they will take care of you and get you what you need um so becky thank you so much for talking with me today and i hope people learned all about data privacy and data security and want to learn more from you in the future.
1: Thank you for having me on the show, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cirque Ideas, or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Clicka. Thanks for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrix Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com promo code PODCAST.
1: Yo's with the most, I Ah. I guess. That's one way of thinking about it. (laughs)